Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. The book was published in 1880 and is a work of travel literature that includes a mixture of autobiography and fictional events. The book details a journey by Twain with his friend Harris, a character created for the book and based on his close friend Joseph Twitchell, through Central and Southern Europe. As the two men make their way through Germany, the Alps, and Italy, they encounter foreign situations made humorous by their reactions to them. Twain plays the part of the American tourist of the time, believing that he understands all that he sees, but in reality understanding none of it. And now, A Tramp Abroad. Chapter 1 One day it occurred to me that it had been many years since the world had been afforded the spectacle of a man adventurous enough to undertake a journey through Europe on foot. After much thought, I decided I was a person fitted to furnish to mankind this spectacle. So I determined to do it. This was in March of 1878. I looked about me for the right sort of person to accompany me in the capacity of agent, and finally hired a Mr. Harris for this service. It was also my purpose to study art while in Europe, Mr. Harris was in sympathy with me in this. He was as much of an enthusiast in art as I was, and not less anxious to learn to paint. I desired to learn the German language, and so did Harris. Toward the middle of April we sailed in the Holsatia, Captain Brandt, and had a very pleasant trip indeed. After a brief rest in Hamburg, we made preparations for a long pedestrian trip southward to the soft spring weather. But at the last minute we changed the program, for private reasons, and took the express train. We made a short halt at Frankfurt-on-Main and found it an interesting city. I would have liked to visit the birthplace of Gutenberg, but it could not be done, as no memorandum of the side of the house had been kept. So we spent an hour in the Gotha mansion instead. The city permits this house to belong to private parties instead of gracing and dignifying herself with the honor of possessing and protecting it. Frankfurt is one of the sixteen cities which have the distinctions of being the place where the following incident occurred. Charlemagne, while chasing the Saxons, as he said, or being chased by them, as they said, arrived on the bank of the river at dawn in a fog. The enemy were either before him or behind him, but in any case he wanted to get across very badly. He would have given anything for a guide, but none was to be had. Presently he saw a deer, followed by her young, approach the water. He watched her, judging that she would seek a ford, and he was right. She waded over, and the army followed. So a great Frankish victory, or defeat, was gained, or avoided. And in order to commemorate the episode, Charlemagne commanded a city to be built there, which he named Frankfurt, the Ford of the Franks. None of the other cities where this event happened were named from it. This is good evidence that Frankfurt was the first place it occurred at. Frankfurt has another distinction. It's the birthplace of the German alphabet, or at least of the German word for alphabet, Buchstaben. They say that the first movable types were made on birch sticks, or Buchstabe, hence the name. I was taught a lesson in political economy in Frankfurt, I had brought from home a box containing a thousand very cheap cigars. By way of experiment, I stepped into a little shop in a queer old back street, 
took four gaily decorated boxes of wax matches and three cigars and laid down a silver piece worth 48 cents. The man gave me 43 cents in change. In Frankfurt, everybody wears clean clothes, and I think we noticed that this strange thing was the case in Hamburg, too, and in the villages along the road. Even in the narrowest and poorest and most ancient quarters of Frankfurt, neat and clean clothes were the rule. The little children of both sexes were nearly always nice enough to take into a body's lap. And as for the uniforms of the soldiers, they were newness and brightness carried to perfection. One could never detect a smirch or a grain of dust upon them. The streetcar conductors and drivers wore pretty uniforms which seemed to be just out of the bandbox, and their manners were as fine as their clothes. In one of the shops I had the luck to stumble upon a book which has charmed me nearly to death. It is entitled, The Legends of the Rhine from Basel to Rotterdam, by F. J. Kiefer, translated by L. W. Garnham, B.A. All the tourists mention the Rhine legends in a sort of way which quietly pretends that the mentioner has been familiar with them all his life, and that the reader cannot possibly be ignorant of them, but no tourist ever tells them. So this little book fed me in a very hungry place. And I, in turn, intend to feed my reader with one or two little lunches from the same larder. I shall not mar Garnham's translation by meddling with its English, for the most toothsome thing about it is its quaint fashion of building English sentences on the German plan, and punctuating them according to no plan at all. In the chapter devoted to Legends of Frankfurt, I found the following. The Knave of Bergen in Frankfurt, at the Romer, was a great mask ball at the Coronation Festival, and in the illuminated saloon, the clanging music invited to dance and splendidly appeared the rich toilets and charms of the ladies, and festively costumed princes and knights. All seemed pleasure, joy, and roguish gaiety. Only one of the numerous guests had a gloomy exterior, but exactly the black armor in which he walked about excited general attention, and his tall figure, as well as the noble propriety of his movements, attracted especially the regards of the ladies. Who was the knight? No one could guess, for his vizier was well closed, and nothing made him recognizable. Proud and yet modest, he advanced to the empress, bowed on one knee before her seat, and begged for the favor of a waltz with the queen of the festival and she allowed his request. With light and graceful steps he danced through the long saloon, with the sovereign who thought never to have found a more dexterous and excellent dancer, but also by the grace of his manner and fine conversation he knew to win the queen, and she graciously accorded him a second dance, for which he begged. A third and a fourth, as well as others, were not refused him. How all regarded the happy dancer, how many envied him the high favor, how increased curiosity who the masked knight might be. Also the emperor became more and more excited with curiosity, and with great suspense one awaited the hour when, according to mask law, each masked guest must make himself known. This moment came, but although all others had unmasked, the secret knight still refused to allow his features to be seen till at last the queen, driven by curiosity and vexed at the obstinate refusal, 
commanded him to open his vizier. He opened it, and none of the high ladies and knights knew him. But from the crowded spectators, two officials advanced, who recognized the black dancer, and horror and terror spread in the saloon as they said who the supposed knight was. It was the executioner of Bergen. But glowing with rage, the king commanded to seize the criminal and lead him to death, him who had ventured to dance with the queen, so disgraced the empress, and insulted the crown. The culpable threw himself at the feet of the emperor and said, Indeed, I have heavily sinned against all noble guests assembled here, but most heavily against you, my sovereign and my queen. The queen is insulted by my haughtiness equal to treason, but no punishment, even blood, will be able to wash out the disgrace which you have suffered by me. Therefore, O king, allow me to propose a remedy, to efface the shame and to render it as if not done. Draw your sword and knight me, then I will throw down my gauntlet to everyone who dares to speak disrespectfully of my king. The emperor was surprised at this bold proposal, however it appeared the wisest to him. You are a knave, he replied, after a moment's consideration. However, your advice is good, and displays prudence, as your offense shows adventurous courage. And then he gave him the knight stroke, and said, I raise you to nobility, who begged for grace for your offense, and now kneels before me. Rise as knight, knavish you have acted, and knave of Bergen shall you be called henceforth. And gladly the black knight rose. Three cheers were given in honor of the emperor, and loud cries of joy testified the approbation with which the queen danced still once more with the knave of Bergen. Chapter 2 Heidelberg We stopped at a hotel by the railway station. Next morning, as we sat in my room waiting for breakfast to come up, we got a good deal interested in something which was going on over the way in front of another hotel. First, the personage, who was called the portier, not the porter, but as a sort of first mate of a hotel, appeared at the door in a spick-and-span new blue cloth uniform, decorated with shining brass buttons and with bands of gold lace around his cap and wristbands, and he wore white gloves, too. He shed an official glance upon the situation and then began to give orders. The two women servants came out with pails and brooms and brushes and gave the sidewalk a thorough scrubbing. Meanwhile, two others scrubbed the four marble steps which led up to the door. Beyond these, we could see some men servants taking up the carpet of the grand staircase. This carpet was carried away and the last grain of dust beaten and banged and swept out of it then brought back and put back down. The brass stair rods received an exhaustive polishing and returned to their places. Now a troop of servants brought pots and tubs of blooming plants and formed them into a beautiful jungle about the door and the base of the staircase. Other servants adorned all the balconies of the various stories with flowers and banners. Others ascended to the roof and hoisted a great flag on a staff there. Now came some more chambermaids and retouched the sidewalk and afterwards wiped the marble steps with damp cloths and finished by dusting them off with feather brushers. Now a broad black carpet was brought out and laid down in the marble steps 
and out across the sidewalk to the curbstone. The portier cast his eye along it and found it was not absolutely straight. He commanded it to be straightened. The servants made the effort, made several efforts, in fact. But the portier was not satisfied. He finally had it taken up, and then he put it down himself and got it right. At this stage of the proceedings, a narrow, bright red carpet was unrolled and stretched from the top of the marble steps to the curbstone along the center of the black carpet. This red path cost the portier more trouble than even the black one had done. But he patiently fixed and refixed it until it was exactly right and lay precisely in the middle of the black carpet. In New York, these performances would have gathered a mighty crowd of curious and intensely interested spectators. But here it only captured an audience of a half a dozen little boys who stood in a row across the pavement, some with school knapsacks on their backs and their hands in their pockets, others with arms full of bundles and all absorbed in the show. Occasionally one of them skipped irreverently across the carpet and took up a position on the other side. This always visibly annoyed the portier. Now came a waiting interval. The landlord, in plain clothes and bareheaded, placed himself on the bottom marble step, abreast of the portier, who stood on the other end of the same steps. Six or eight waiters, gloved, bareheaded, and wearing their whitest linen, their whitest cravats, and their finest swallowtails, grouped themselves about these chiefs, but leaving the carpetway clear. Nobody moved or spoke any more, but only waited. In a short time, the shrill piping of a coming train was heard, and immediately groups of people began to gather in the street. Two or three open carriages arrived and deposited some maids of honor and some uh, male officials at the hotel. Presently, another open carriage brought the Grand Duke of Baden, a stately man in uniform who wore the handsome, brass-mounted, steel-spiked helmet of the army on his head. Last came the Empress of Germany and the Grand Duchess of Baden, in a closed carriage. These passed through the low, bowing groups of servants and disappeared in the hotel, exhibiting to us only the backs of their heads, and then the show was over. It appears to be as difficult to land a monarch as it is to launch a ship. But as to Heidelberg, the weather was growing pretty warm, very warm, in fact, so we left the valley and took quarters at the Schloss Hotel on the hill above the castle. Heidelberg lies at the mouth of a narrow gorge, a gorge the shape of a shepherd's crook. If one looks up it, he perceives that it is about straight for a mile and a half and then makes a sharp curve to the right and disappears. This gorge, along whose bottom pours the swift Neckar River, is confined between, or cloven through, a couple of long, steep ridges, thousand feet high and densely wooded, clear to their summits. With the exception of one section, which has been shaved and put under cultivation, these ridges are chopped off at the mouth of the gorge and form two bold and conspicuous headlands, with Heidelberg nestling between them. From their bases spreads away the vast dim expanse of the Rhine Valley, and into this expanse the Neckar goes wandering in shining curves and is presently lost to view. Now, if one turns and looks up the gorge once more, he will see the Schloss Hotel on the right, perched on a precipice overlooking the Neckar, a precipice which is so sumptuously cushioned and draped with foliage that no glimpse of the rock appears. 
The building seems very airily situated. It has the appearance of being on a shelf halfway up the wooded mountainside. And, as it is remote and isolated and very white, it makes a strong mark against the lofty, leafy rampart on its back. This hotel had a feature which was a decided novelty, and one which might be adopted with advantage by any house which is perched in a commanding situation. This feature may be described as a series of glass-enclosed parlors clinging to the outside of the house, one against each and every bedchamber and drawing room. They are like long, narrow, high-ceiling bird cages hung against the building. My room was a corner room and had two of these things, a north one and a west one. From the north cage, one looks up the Neckar Gorge. From the west one, he looks down it. This last affords the most extensive view, and is one of the loveliest that can be imagined, too. Out of a billowy upheaval of vivid green foliage, a rifle shot removed and rises the huge ruin of Heidelberg Castle, with empty window arches, ivy-mailed battlements, moldering towers, the leer of inanimate nature. Deserted, discrowned, beaten by the storms, but royal still and beautiful. It is a fine sight to see the evening sunlight suddenly strike the leafy declivity at the castle's base and dash up it and drench it as with a luminous spray, while the adjacent groves are in deep shadow. Behind the castle swells a great dome-shaped hill, forest-clad, and beyond that a nobler and loftier one. The castle looks down upon the compact, brown-roofed town, and from the town two picturesque old bridges span the river. Now the view broadens. Through the gateway of the sentinel headlands, you gaze out over the wide Rhine plain, which stretches away, softly and richly tinted, grows gradually and dreamily indistinct, and finally melts imperceptibly into the remote horizon. I've never enjoyed a view which had such a serene and satisfying charm about it as this one gives. First night we were there, we went to bed and to sleep early. But I awoke at the end of two or three hours and lay a comfortable while listening to the soothing patter of the rain against the balcony windows. I took it to be rain, but it turned out to only be the murmur of the restless Neckar tumbling over her dikes and dams far below in the gorge. I got up and went into the west balcony and saw a wonderful sight. Away down on the level, under the black mass of the castle, the town lay, stretched along the river, its intricate cobweb of streets jeweled with twinkling lights. There were rows of lights on the bridges. These flung lances of light upon the water. In the black shadows of the arches, and away at the extremity of all this fairy spectacle, blinked and glowed a mass multitude of gas jets, which seemed to cover acres of ground. It was as if all the diamonds in the world had been spread out there. I did not know before that a half-mile of sextuple railway tracks could be made such an adornment. One thinks of Heidelberg by day with its surroundings as the last possibility of beautiful. But when one sees Heidelberg at night, a fallen Milky Way with that glittering railway constellation pinned to the border, he requires time to consider upon the verdict. One never tires of poking about in the dense woods that clothe all these lofty Neckar hills to their tops. The great deeps of a boundless forest have a beguiling and impressive charm in any country, 
but German legends and fairy tales have given these an added charm. They have peopled all that region with gnomes and dwarves and elves and all sorts of mysterious and uncanny creatures. At the time I am writing of, I had been reading so much of this literature that sometimes I was not sure, but I was beginning to believe in the gnomes and fairies as realities. One afternoon I got lost in the woods about a mile from the hotel, and presently fell into a train of dreamy thought about animals that talk, and kobolds, and enchanted folk, and the rest of the pleasant legendary stuff. And so by stimulating my fancy, I finally got to imagining I glimpsed small fleeting shapes here and there down the columned aisles of the forest. It was a place which was peculiarly met for the occasion. It was a pine wood, with so thick and soft a carpet of brown needles that one's footfall made no more sound than if he was treading on wool. The tree trunks were as round and straight and smooth as pillars, and stood close together. They were bare of branches to a point about twenty-five feet above the ground, and from there upward so thick with boughs that not a ray of sunlight could pierce through. The world was bright with sunshine outside, but a deep and mellow twilight reigned in there, and also a silence so profound that I seemed to hear my own breathings. When I stood ten minutes thinking and imagining and getting my spirit in tune with the place, and in the right mood to enjoy the supernatural, a raven suddenly uttered a hoarse croak over my head. It made me start, and then I was angry because I started. I looked up, and the creature was sitting on a limb right over me, looking down at me. I felt something of the same sense of humiliation and injury which one feels when he finds that a human stranger has been clandestinely inspecting him in his privacy and mentally commenting upon him. I eyed the raven, and the raven eyed me. Nothing was said during some seconds. Then the bird stepped a little away along his limb to get a better point of observation, lifted his wings, stuck his head far down between his shoulders toward me, croaked again, a croak with a distinctly insulting expression about it. If he had spoken in English, he could not have said any more plainly than he did in Raven, Well, what do you want here? I felt as foolish as if I had been caught in some mean act by a responsible being and reproved for it. However, I made no reply. I would not bandy words with a raven. And the adversary waited a little with his shoulders still lifted, his head thrust down between them, and his keen, bright eye fixed on me. Then he threw out two or three more insults, which I could not understand further than I knew a portion of them consisted of language not used in a church. I still made no reply. Now the adversary raised his head and called. There was an answering croak from a little distance in the wood, evidently a croak of inquiry. The adversary explained with enthusiasm, and the other raven dropped everything and came. Now the two sat side by side on the limb and discussed me as freely and offensively as two great naturalists might discuss a new kind of bug. The thing became more and more embarrassing. They called in another friend. Now this was too much. I saw that they had the advantage of me, so I concluded to get out of the scrape by walking out of it. They enjoyed my defeat as much as any low white people could have done. They craned their necks and laughed at me, for a raven can laugh, just like a man. 
They squalled insulting remarks after me as long as they could see me. They were nothing but ravens, I knew that. What they thought about me could be a matter of no consequence. And yet, when even a raven shouts after you, What a hat! Oh, pull down your vest! And that sort of thing, it hurts you and humiliates you. And there is no getting around it with fine reasoning and pretty arguments. Animals talk to each other, of course. There can be no question about that. But I suppose there are very few people who can understand them. I never knew but one man who could. I knew he could, however, because he told me so himself. He was a middle-aged, simple-hearted miner who had lived in a lonely corner of California among the woods and mountains a good many years and had studied the ways of his only neighbors, the beasts and the birds, until he believed he could accurately translate any remark which they made. This was Jim Baker. According to Jim Baker, some animals have only a limited education and use only very simple words, and scarcely ever a comparison or a flowery figure, whereas certain other animals have a large vocabulary, a fine command of the language, and a ready and fluent delivery, and consequently these latter talk a great deal. They like it, they are conscious of their talent, and they enjoy showing off. Baker told me that after long and careful observation, he had come to the conclusion that the blue jays were the best talkers he had found among the birds and beasts. Said he, He has got more moods and more different kinds of feelings than any other creature. Mind you, whatever a blue jay feels, he can put into language. And no mere commonplace language, neither. But rattling out-and-out book talk and bristling with metaphors, too. Just bristling. And as for command the language, why, you never see a blue jay get stuck for a word. No man ever did. They just boil out of them. And another thing, I've noticed a good deal. There's no bird or cow or anything that uses a good grammar as a blue jay. You can say a cat uses good grammar. Well, a cat does, but you let a cat get to pulling fur at one another, another cat on a shed, nights, and you'll hear grammar that will give you the lockjaw. Ignorant people think it's noise which fighting cats make that's so aggravating, but it ain't so. It's the sickening grammar they use. Now, I've never heard a jay use bad grammar, but very seldom. When they do, they are as ashamed as a human. They shut right down and leave. Y'all may call the jay bird. Well, so he is in a measure, because he's got feathers on him and don't belong to no church, perhaps. But otherwise, he is just as much a human as you be. And I'll tell you why. A jay's gifts and instincts and feelings and interests cover the whole ground. A jay hasn't got no more interest in principle than a congressman. A jay will lie, a jay will steal, a jay will deceive, a jay will betray. And four times out of five, a jay will go back on his solemnest promise. A sacredness of an obligation is a thing which you can't cram into no blue jay's head. Now, on top of all this, there's another thing. A jay can outswear any gentleman in the mines. You think a cat can swear? Well, a cat can, but you give a blue jay a subject that calls for his reserved powers, and where is your cat? Don't talk to me. I know too much about this thing. There's yet another thing, and this one little particular scolding. Just good, clean, out-and-out -out scolding. A blue jay can lay over anything, human or divine. Yes, sir, Ray Bob. A jay is everything a man is. A jay can cry, a jay can laugh, a jay can feel shame, a jay can reason, 
and plan and discuss. A Jay likes gossip and scandal. A Jay has got a sense of humor. A Jay knows when he is an ass just as well as you do, maybe better. If a Jay ain't human, he better take in his sign, that's all. Now I'm going to tell you a perfectly true fact about some Blue Jays. Chapter 3 Baker's Blue Jay Yarn well, I first begun to understand Jay language correctly. There was little incident happened here. Seven years ago, the last man in this region, but me, moved away. There stands his house, been empty ever since. A log house with a plank roof. Just one big room and no more. No ceiling, nothing between the rafters and the floor. Well, one Sunday morning I was sitting out here in front of my cabin with my cat, taking the sun and looking at the blue hills and listening to the leaves rustling so lonely in the trees and thinking of the home away yonder in the States that I hadn't heard from in 13 years when a blue jay lit on the house with an acorn in his mouth and says, Hello, I reckon I struck something. When he spoke, the acorn dropped out of his mouth and rolled down the roof, of course. But he didn't care. His mind was all on the thing he had struck. It was a knot hole in the roof. He cocked his head to one side and shut his eye and put the other one in the hole like a possum looking down a jug. Then he glanced up with his bright eyes and gave a wink or two with his wings, which signifies gratification, you understand, and says, It looks like a hole. It's located like a hole. Blamed if I don't believe it is a hole. Then he cocked his head down and took another look. He glances up, perfectly joyful, this time winks his wings and his tail both and says, Oh no, this ain't no fat thing, I reckon. If I was in any luck, why, it's a perfectly elegant hole. So he flew down and got that acorn, fetched it up and dropped it in, and was just tilting his head back with the heavenliest smile on his face when all of a sudden he was paralyzed into a listening attitude. And that smile faded gradually out of his countenance like the breath off an eraser. And the queerest look of surprise took his place. Then he says, Why, I'd hear fall. He cocked his eye at the hole again and took a long look, raised up and shook his head, stepped around to the other side of the hole, and took another look from that side, shook his head again. He studied it a while, then he just went down into the details. Walked around and around the hole, spied into it from every point of the compass. No use. Now he took a thinking attitude on the comb of the roof and scratched the back of his head with his right foot a minute and finally says, Well, it's too many for me, that's certain. Must be a mighty long hole. However, I ain't got no time to fool around here. I got to tend to business. I reckon it's all right. So he flew off and fetched another acorn and dropped it in tried to flirt his eye to the hole quick enough to see what become of it, but he was too late. He held his eye there as much as a minute, and then he raised up and sighed and said, Consound it! I don't seem to understand this thing, no way. However, I'll tackle her again. He fetched another acorn and done his level best to see what became of that, but he couldn't. He says, Well, I never struck no such hole as this. I'm of the opinion it's a totally new kind of hole. Then he began to get mad. He held it in for a spell, walking up and down the comb of the roof and shaking his head and muttering to himself. But his feelings got the upper hand of him presently, and he broke loose and cussed himself black in the face. 
I've never seen a bird take on so about a little thing. When he got through, he walks to the hole, looks in again for a half minute, then says, We're a long hole and a deep hole and a mighty singular hole altogether. But I've started in to fill you, and I'll, I'll be damned if I don't fill you if it takes a hundred years. And with that, he went away. You never seen a bird work so since you were born. He laid into his work like a negro. And the way he hove acorns into that hole for about two hours and a half was one of the most exciting and astonishing spectacles I ever struck. He never stopped to look any more. He just hove in and went for more. Well, at last, he couldn't hardly flap his wings. He was so tuckered out. He comes dropping down once more, sweating like an ice pitcher, dropping his acorns in and says, Now I guess I've got the bulge on you this time. So he bent down for a look. If you'll believe me, when his head comes up, he was just pale with rage. He says, I've shoveled acorns enough in there to keep the whole family for 30 years. And if I can see a sign of one of them, I wish I may land in the museum with a belly full of sawdust in two minutes. He just had strength enough to crawl up onto the comb and lean his back against the chimney, and he collected his impressions and begun to free his mind. I see in a second that what I mistook for profanity in the mines was only just the rudiments, as you might say. Another jay was going by and heard him doing his devotions and stops to inquire what was up. The sufferer told him the whole circumstances and says, Now yonder's the hole, and if you don't believe me, go look for yourself. So this fellow went and looked and comes back and says, How many did you put down there? Not any less than two tons, says the sufferer. The other jay went and looked again. He couldn't seem to make it out, so he raised a yell, and three more jays come. They all examined the hole. They all made the sufferer tell it over again. Then they all discussed it and got off as many leather-headed opinions about it as an average crowd of humans could have done. They called in more jays, then more and more, till pretty soon this whole region appeared to have a blue flush about it. There must have been 5,000 of them, and such another jog and disputing and ripping and cussing you never heard. Every jay in the whole lot put his eye to the hold and delivered a more chuckle-headed opinion about the mystery than the jay that went there before him. They examined the house all over. The door was still standing half open. And at last, one old jay happened to go in and light on it and look inside. Of course, that knocked the mystery galley west in a second. There lay the acorns scattered all over the floor. He flopped his wings and raised a whoop. Come here, he says. Come here, everybody. Hanged if this fool hasn't been trying to fill up a house with acorns. They all came a-swooping down like a blue cloud, and each fellow lit on the door and took a glance. The whole absurdity of the contract that the first Jay had tackled hit him home, and he fell over backwards, suffocating with laughter. And the next Jay took his place and done the same. Well, sir, they roosted around here on the housetop and the trees for an hour and guffawed over that thing like human beings. Ain't any use to tell me a blue jay ain't got a sense of humor, because I know better. And a memory, too. They brought jays here from all over the United States to look down that hole every summer for three years. Other birds, too. And they could all see the point, except an owl that come from Nova Scotia to visit Yosemite, and he took this thing in on his way back. He said he couldn't see anything funny in it, but then again, he was a good deal disappointed about Yosemite, too. Chapter 4 
Student Life The summer semester was in full tide. Consequently, the most frequent figure in and about Heidelberg was a student. Most of the students were Germans, of course, but the representatives of foreign lands were very numerous. They hailed from every corner of the globe, for instruction is cheap in Heidelberg, and so was living, too. The Anglo-American Club, composed of British and American students, had 25 members, and there was still much material left to draw from. Nine-tenths of the Heidelberg students wore no badge or uniform. The other tenth wore caps of various colors and belonged to social organizations called corps. There were five corps, each with a color of its own. There were white caps, blue caps, red, yellow, and green ones. The famous dual fighting is confined to the corps boys, or the knipe. The knipe seems a specialty of theirs as well. Knipes are held now and then to celebrate great occasions, like the election of a beer king, for instance. The solemnity is simple. The five corps assemble at night, and at a signal they all fall, loading themselves with beer, out of pint mugs as fast as possible, and each man keeps his own count, usually by laying aside a lucifer match for each mug he empties. The election is soon decided. When the candidates can hold no more, a count is instituted, and the one who has drank the greatest number of pints is proclaimed king. I was told that the last beer king elected by the corps, or by his own capabilities, emptied his mug seventy-five times. No stomach could hold all that quantity at one time, of course, but there are ways of frequently creating a vacuum which those who have been much at sea will understand. One sees so many students abroad at all hours that he presently begins to wonder if they ever have any working hours. Some of them have, some of them haven't. Each can choose for himself whether he will work or play. For German university life is a very free life. It seems to have no constraints. The student does not live in the college buildings, but hires his own lodgings in any locality he prefers, and he takes his meals when and where he pleases, and he goes to bed when it suits him, and does not get up at all unless he wants to. He's not entered at the university for any particular length of time, so he is likely to change about. He passes no examination upon entering college, he merely pays a trifling fee of five or ten dollars, receives a card entitling him to the privileges of the university, and that is about the end of it. He's now ready for business, or play as he shall prefer. If he elects to work, he finds a large list of lectures to choose from. He selects subjects which he will study and enters his name for these studies, but he can skip attendance. The result of this system is that lecture courses upon specialities of an unusual nature are often delivered to very slim audiences, while those upon more practical and everyday matters of education are delivered to very large ones. I heard of one case where, day after day, the lecturer's audience consisted of three students, and always the same three. But one day, two of them rained away, and the lecture began as usual. Gentlemen. Then, without a smile, he corrected himself, saying, Sir, and went on with his discourse. It is said that the vast majority of Heidelberg students are hard workers and make the most of their opportunities, that they have no surplus means to spend their dissipation and no time to spare for frolicking. One lecture follows right on the heels of another, with very little time for the student to get out of one hall and into the next, but the industrious ones manage it by going at a trot. The professors assist them in the saving of their time by being promptly in their little boxed-up pulpits 
when the hour strikes, and is promptly out again when the hour finishes. I entered an empty lecture room one day just before the clock struck. The place had simple, unpainted pine desks and benches for about 200 people. About a minute before the clock struck, 150 students swarmed in, rushed to their seats, immediately spread open their notebooks and dipped their pens in ink. When the clock began to strike, a burly professor entered, was received with a round of applause, moved swiftly down the center aisle, said, Gentlemen, and began to talk as he climbed to his pulpit. By the time he had arrived in his box and faced his audience, his lecture was well underway, and all the pens were going. He had no notes. He talked with prodigious rapidity and energy for an hour. Then the students began to remind him in certain well-understood ways that his time was up. He seized his hat, still talking, proceeded swiftly down his pulpit steps, got out the last words of his discourse as he struck the floor. Everybody rose respectfully, and he swept rapidly down the aisle and disappeared. An instant rush for some other lecture room followed, and in a minute I was alone with the empty benches once more. Yes, without doubt, idle students are not the rule. Out of the eight hundred in the town, I knew the faces of only about fifty. But these I saw everywhere and daily. They walked about the streets and wooded hills, they drove in cabs, they boated on the river, they sipped beer and coffee, afternoons in the Schloss Gardens, a good many of them wore the colored caps of the corps. They were finely and fashionably dressed, their manners quite superb. They led an easy, careless, comfortable life. If a dozen of them sat together and a lady or a gentleman passed whom one of them knew and saluted, they all rose to their feet and took off their caps. The members of a corps always received a fellow member in this way, too, but they paid no attention to members of other corps. They did not seem to see them. This was not discourtesy. It was only a part of the elaborate and rigid corps etiquette. There seemed to be no chilly distance existing between the German students and the professors. On the contrary, a companionable intercourse and the opposite of chilliness and reserve. When the professor entered a beer hall in the evening where students were gathered together, they rose up and took off their caps and invited the old gentleman to sit with them and partake. He accepted and the pleasant talk and beer flowed for an hour or two. And by and by the professor, properly charged and comfortable, gives a cordial good night while the students stand bowing and uncovered. Then he moved on his happy way homeward with all his vast cargo of learning afloat in his hold. Nobody finds fault or feels outraged. No harm has been done. It seemed to be a part of core etiquette to keep a dog or so, too. I mean a core dog the common property of the organization, like the core steward or the head servant. Then there are other dogs owned by individuals. On a summer afternoon in the castle gardens, I have seen six students march solemnly into the grounds in single file, each carrying a bright Chinese parasol and leading a prodigious dog by a string. It was a very imposing spectacle. Sometimes there were about as many dogs about the pavilion as students and of all breeds and all degrees of beauty and ugliness. These dogs had a rather dry time of it, for they were tied to the benches and had no amusement for an hour or two at a time except what they could get out of pawing at the gnats or trying to sleep and not succeeding. However, they got a lump of sugar occasionally that they were fond of. It seemed right and proper that the students should indulge in dogs, but everybody else had them too. Old men, young men, old women 
nice young ladies. There is one spectacle that is unpleasanter than another. It is that of an elegantly dressed young lady towing a dog by a string. It is said to be the sign and symbol of blighted love. Seems to me that some other way of advertising it might be devised, which would be just as conspicuous and yet not as trying on the proprieties. It would be a mistake to suppose that the easy-going, pleasure-seeking student carries an empty head. Just the contrary, he has spent nine years in the gymnasium under a system which allowed him no freedom, but vigorously compelled him to work like a slave. Consequently, he has left the gymnasium with an education which is so extensive and complete that the most the university can do for it is to perfect some of its profounder specialties. It is said that when a pupil leaves the gymnasium, he not only has a comprehensive education, but he knows what he knows. It is not befogged with uncertainty. It is burnt into him so that it will stay. For instance, he does not merely read and write Greek, but speaks it. The same with Latin. Foreign youth steer clear of the gymnasium. Its rules are too severe. They go to the university to put a mansard roof on their whole general education. But the German student already has his mansard roof. So he goes there to add a steeple in the nature of some specialty, such as a particular branch of law or medicine or philology, like international law or diseases of the eye or special study of the ancient Gothic tongues. So this German attends only the lectures which belong to the chosen branch and drinks his beer and tows his dog around and has a general good time the rest of the day. He has been in rigid bondage so long that the large liberty of university life is just what he needs and likes and thoroughly appreciates, and it cannot last forever. He makes the most of it while it does last, and so lays up a good rest against the day that must see him put on the chains once more and enter the slavery of official or professional life.